want to read our passage for today and then uh, just pray for our time in the Word, all right? Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. If you don't have that pulled up quite yet, I don't blame you. Follow along on the screen here. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and, and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? And Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we just pray that uh, as we open your word, God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that the Holy Spirit would come and help us to understand, to hear. Father, we pray that uh, we would think not only about how you want to change us and what you're calling us to, but we also pray, God, that you would give us a vision for how we might join you in the mission of the church outside of these walls, to go to make disciples, to love God, to love people, to love our community in real and tangible ways, God. Open our eyes to how we might do that, to how we might have conversations that lead to action and change, not only in us, but in others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. February 26, 2015. Anybody know why that date is significant in history? February 26, 2015. It is the day that the dress broke the internet. Anybody remember this? It's coming back to you now? February 26, 2015, there was a picture posted of a dress. The dress was black and blue. Or was it? Right? The dress was black and blue, um, but some began to say, no, 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 the dress is gold and white. And um, 32 million some emails later, the guy who originally posted it realized he had uh, gotten himself into something. Just for the record, uh, it has been confirmed, the company that made the dress said the dress was black and blue. There were no white and gold dresses in production when they posted that picture, but you better believe that they made some white and gold ones after that. <laughs> so sales of the dress definitely went up. But uh, man, that was such an interesting phenomenon that this one picture uh, man, so quickly drew sides, and people had such a high and strong opinion about whether the dress was black and blue or gold and white. 
And uh, it's just that reminder that in today's day and age, I don't know what it is, but people will pick fights over just about anything. If we're going to argue about a picture on the Internet, which people did, man, what? I mean, there's, that nothing is off limits. But there's a hidden side effect to arguing about anything and to being um, maybe a little bit hostile towards anything. And that it's often that when we pick fights over anything, it makes us numb to everything. All of a sudden, we begin to treat more difficult conversations or arguments that maybe have a little bit more tension in them, similarly to the way that we did the dress. It's fun for a weekend or for a week, and then we just kind of forget about it and walk away. We get so focused on winning the debate at hand that we actually use less logic. There's research that supports that that's what we do. So what does it have to do with anything that we're reading in this passage? Well, as we come to this passage today, uh, there's kind of two uh, instances, and in these instances we see Jesus um, doing something that I think many of us fail to do, and that's maintain his integrity in the face of uh, what could be a heated debate that's trying to trap us in our words. And so I want us to think about these two instances. We're going to kind of parallel through them for a little bit this morning and think about what they mean for our lives and for us. And so first we see the, the Pharisees and, and the Herodians, right? It says right there at the beginning of the passage, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. Uh, these two groups of people were there to trap him. They were there to try and corner him, to make him mess up. And, and not only that, it says they were sent, right? Like these people were trying to get Jesus in trouble. But what's in, interesting is that they were actually enemies who were willing to work together to try and defeat this common enemy. You see, the Pharisees, they were all about defending the Jewish law and making sure that things were fair, you see. That's how you remember what a Pharisee is. Pharisee, they wanted to make sure that things were fair, you see. And so they were all about defending the Jewish law. They were kind of on the, the spiritual side. They didn't want anything, you know, uh, just this morning, Rosemary Colvin walked in and she was talking about fall break and, you know, people being on vacation. And she was like, well, back in the old days, it's like, how old? No, I didn't ask her that. She said, back in the old days, if you went on vacation and you went to another church, she said, I would have to take my bulletin and give it back to my church. I was like, wow, I might be in some trouble, Jesus. <laughs> but, uh, but the Pharisees, that might have been the way that they thought, right? Like everything was about being fair, you see, doing the right thing. Well, the Herodians on the other side, uh, they were kind of all about supporting and defending Herod the king, the political side of things. And so here you have, uh, might you say, church and state, two groups coming together to try and trap Jesus in his words. And when they ask him this question about taxes, they knew already that they disagreed on the answer. And they wanted Jesus to pick sides, to slip up, to lose his integrity, to give up the honor and respect that he had earned among the people. If he would just let his integrity slip, then both groups would be better off, right? They would have this common enemy. Same is true for the Sadducees that we see in the second little story. The Sadducees were sad, you see. That's how you remember what That's cheesy, I know, but you all learned this in Sunday school, and you remember it forever. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe that anybody could be dead and then alive, so they were very sad, you see. So when life was over, life was over. 
And uh, they came to try and disprove Jesus' theological ideas. They, they came to get into a debate about what the word really said. They wanted him to, to look illogical and, and not very smart. So what does this have to do with us? What, what, when we think about the issues in this moment in time where these groups of men are coming to try and trap Jesus in his words to get him to, to you know, give up some integrity, to maybe get a little angry, um, what, what does that have to do with us? Well, there's a plethora of issues, right, in our world, in our culture, which we can mention, we can kind of talk about or talk around, but we, but we really struggle to engage the conversation and figure out how we talk about those things in a healthy way. We either can't hear the other side or we're angry that they are issues at all, or, or maybe we just aren't willing to give up our own comfort to, to meet people in their discomfort. And so we have issues like the dress that, okay, it's kind of a fun little nitpicky thing, but then we've taken our model for talking about the dress and friendly banter, and we've tried to apply it to these issues that are much more serious. I'm just going to say like four things, and I can like watch the blood boil as I go, right? Like Colin Kaepernick. Oh, oh, look. <laughs> Black Lives Matter. Separation of families, refugee families at the border, right? And I could go on, right? like it, but it's not worth it at this moment. What often happens too often in, in these things is we care about these things for a weekend. We, we search the internet, we search Twitter, we watch our favorite news outlet, the one that we prefer, for a weekend. And we kind of figure out what we think we believe on it. And then we just brush it off as another argument like the dress, right? And, and we forget that there are real people in these issues. And what's so interesting about these two stories here in the middle of Mark, in the middle of this week between Jesus coming in and being heralded as the king and then being hung on the cross, what's so interesting in the middle of these things is that the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're there just trying to prove their points, to win their argument, and they're forgetting that there's people on the other side of these arguments. But Jesus, but Jesus... And being God is able to, to think about these things, to, to bring in the conversation and remind people of, of the fact that there are people behind all of these questions. You know, we all, I hope, set out to be the person that does the right thing, that lives with integrity. We, we hope to maintain our integrity in a fierce world. But all of us have likely watched as people's integrity have gone up in flames, sometimes our own. But somehow in this moment where Jesus is being attacked, where they're trying to trap him, he maintains his integrity. And not only does he maintain his integrity, we read in verse 17 that they were utterly amazed at him. So in a moment where they're trying to get him to slip up, to mess up, to do the wrong thing, he actually ends up on the other side of it, and, and they're amazed at who he is and how he handles the situation. Isn't that what we would want? Imagine if each of us in this place could begin to dialogue, to engage in uh, conversation with people in our lives and in our world in such a way that they said, wow, I'm not sure how they did that. I'm not sure how they processed that. I'm not sure what they're doing, but I'm amazed at the way that they're thinking about what's happening. You know, losing our integrity, uh, I, I think many of us think that it's often just blowing up. But losing our integrity can happen both by overreaction and underreaction. 
Many of us can maybe think of uh, an easy story of overreaction. Losing my cool in a he said, she said battle with my kids. If you have more than one kid, you can relate. If you don't, you can just try to empathize with my pain for a moment, right? They come downstairs. Dad, he did this. Yeah, but Dad, she did this. And you don't really know what happened. And you let them go back and forth for a minute, and then you're like, enough. Like, you just blow up. Everybody's in timeout. Nothing good for the rest of the day, right? What, like, you just lose your cool. You, there's no way to maintain your integrity in that situation, I'm convinced. Overreaction is one way to, to lose your integrity, but there's also underreaction. I remember in my first ministry, uh, there was a family. They had one kid. He graduated out of the ministry and, and went to college. And in his first semester in college, he began dating a girl. And so these parents came in. And I, I love these parents. It's a great family. And they sat down in my office and they said, Blake, we've got an issue. Okay. And they began to share the story of their son going away to college, which you know, I knew. We kind of walked through this journey already. And they said, well, here's the problem. Our son has started dating a girl, and she's black. Okay. I said, we don't think he should be dating someone who's black. Oh. They didn't train me how to deal with that kind of thing. So we just began to talk, and I just tried to listen, I, and I really didn't even know what to say to them. And, and I expressed to them that, that I, I wasn't really sure that there was anything that was wrong with that. But regardless, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in a place to, to call him, right? Like, I definitely didn't feel that. I wasn't going to call him and have a conversation about not dating this girl because she was black. And as I've looked back on that situation over time, I realized that I lost a little bit of integrity in that situation, not because I didn't call him, but because I didn't take the time to sit down and, and share with those parents why, what their, like, they, like why their attitude about that situation was sinful and wrong. How they valued that young lady less than God did. And so sometimes we don't lose our integrity by overreaction. Sometimes we lose our integrity by underreaction. And to me, that is the miracle of, of what Jesus does in this passage. Why can't, we, why can't we maintain this balance as humans? Why do we struggle to maintain integrity in this world that's so crazy and chaotic? I think this passage gives us three reasons maybe uh, that we can look at and we can begin to ask ourselves, man, is this me? Number one is that we'd rather fight to be right than face being wronged. We'd rather fight to be right than face being wrong. Verse 15, Jesus, uh, you know, I, I love how Mark gives us this insight. It says, but Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus knows. He knew that what was going on in their hearts and minds was wrong, that they were just trying to pick a fight. And so he, he begins by asking the question, why are you testing me? You know, it's kind of like those moments where you show up late for an event or maybe you show up late for family Christmas. For me, when we show up late, I'd rather have a fight with Caitlin right there in front of everybody than walk in and be embarrassed. So, like, I'll be like, well, it's Caitlin's fault that we, and I'm like, knowing that she's like, no, that's not fair. 
right? We'd rather fight to be right than face being wrong. We can't maintain our integrity when we're more concerned about proving that it's someone else's fault. We can't maintain our integrity when we're more concerned about ensuring that people see us as the victim, explaining that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for my spouse or for my kid and what they did. We can't maintain our integrity when we're more concerned about maintaining our stronghold on the systems that helped us get to where we are, no matter how one-sided they are. We can't maintain our integrity when we're more concerned about figuring out who to blame it on instead of simply owning what we can. One of the reasons that we don't maintain our integrity to be able to speak into our world and our situations and to, to bring the gospel into that is because we'd rather fight to be right than face being wrong. But Jesus gives us a couple of other reasons in the Sadducees, and he says in verse 24, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. I'm, I'm like challenged and convicted by our kiddos and the way they told those stories today. It's incredible. Psalm 119.11 says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I've treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And, and so often we want the output without the input. We desire to be good people who don't sin, but we don't want to take the time to put the word in. There was some research done by Lifeway. Uh, we got a graphic to show that helps us understand this. So the question was, how much of the Bible have you personally read? And it was a really interesting question because so many people felt like they were engaging the Bible you know, they felt like they valued the Bible, but then when they began to ask practical, like, execution application questions, that it wasn't really there. So there's all kinds of things that you can maybe, points that you can make off of this, but one that I'll, I'll make is this. More than half, right? Like, if you look at the right half, more than half people have, led res, have read less than half of the Bible. I don't say that like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just as challenged by this as you are. So this isn't one of those things. It's just this interesting observation that, you know, we say as Christ followers that we want to read the Bible and maybe we read a, the verse of the day or, or maybe, you know, we grab a, a tidbit here or we share the post of our friend. We say we value God's word, but more than half of us, by research, have read less than half of it. We don't know the story. We don't know scripture. You know, it's really interesting what we do to ourselves when we want to put off as though we know something, but we don't really know it. We begin to divert. I think about um, one uh, instance that I do this all the time. Uh, how many of y'all have read Harry Potter? A few? All right. It's getting old. Good. I'm not alone. I haven't read it either. I haven't read it either, but it was really interesting because a lot of people that I'll have conversations with love Harry Potter. And so they'll be like, have you read Harry Potter? And I'm like, no. But my brother has. And I tell him this amazing story because my brother is a huge Harry Potter fan. And every time a new book came out, he would reread the entire series. So like the first book he's read like seven times. I don't know, you know, like, he's like, it's huge. And so I would always tell that story to divert away from the fact that I didn't really know anything about Harry Potter. The funny thing is that I think many times we end up doing that about Scripture. We want to talk about a hard issue, right? We want to talk about race. We want to talk about 
refugees. We want to talk about how we handle our money. We want to talk about how we parent. We want to talk about a lot of things that happen in our daily lives. And we want to talk as though we know what the Bible says about those things. More than half of us haven't read half of it. And so we just divert. We go to practical wisdom. We, we go to what our friend said. We don't know the scriptures. And when we don't know the scriptures, we can't maintain our integrity. We end up faking our understanding of who God is. We divert to stories or issues that pick a fight and get people focused on something else. We don't know the right thing to do because we can't consider what to do in light of God's word. But he says there's one more thing that we don't know, and that's the power of God. He says you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For the Sadducees, this was specifically the power of God to raise people from the dead. They didn't know that power. You see, the Sadducees, they held fast to what they call the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in their mind, this was a reasonable argument. Follow the Ten Commandments, live a good life, and you've completed your purpose. Nothing else mattered. And in arguing for that, they had lost sight of the power of God. They didn't believe that God was powerful enough to resurrect people because God had already done his thing, it was done, it was over, he had done enough. Research, there's been some research done. This is cool stuff. It suggests that humans are actually at their most reasonable when they are arguing, when they're picking positions that are easier to defend from criticism and thinking over each choice and word more carefully. In other words, we kind of decide what we think about God and then we just stay there and we limit and don't know his power. Our minds seem to deploy reason as a weapon and a way of defeating another person and that actually can blind us to the truth. So we, we can't maintain our integrity when we don't know the power of God because we have no respect for the one who makes us worthy in the first place. We don't know the power of God because we've become too prideful in our ability to reason away our need for the power of God. You see, these things that Jesus is pointing out about the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, we just look at it and we see it in a vacuum and we're like, man, those poor people. But when we really begin to break it down, we begin to see that we're a whole lot like, like, we're more like these people than we think. And just like they weren't maintaining their integrity, they were out to defeat Jesus, we struggle to do the same. There's no way for us to continually maintain our integrity in this convoluted, divided, bloodthirsty world. Instead, we end up just like them. Liars, fakes, hypocrites, and arrogant jerks who don't have a leg to stand on when we're talking about things that really matter, things that involve people's lives. So how in the world did Jesus do it, right? How did he maintain his integrity, and how did that integrity then upset the injustice that was happening in his day and age? And how can we join him and do it through him? Jesus did it by reminding each person that day who was there listening and engaging in this conversation, he reminded them who created them. Watch this. Jesus knows their hypocrisy, right? We, we talked about that. And he knows yours and mine too. He knows the awful things that you thought about other people. He knows the things that you did in secret this week that weren't right. He knows how you're working the system to get what you want. And he knew those Pharisees and Herodians and that they were doing it too. And as he knows that, he asks for a coin. And he holds it up and he looks at it and he asks this huge question. Whose image an inscription is this? Caesar's. 
Give to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. Do you see the logic? If it has Caesar's image on it, give it to him. And thus, if it has God's image on it, give it to God. What is it that bears the image of God in this world? You see, in this story, in that moment of time, the Pharisees and the Herodians bore the image of God. They were created in his image. But today, it's us. It's you. It's me. Every single created person is is created to bear the image of God, to reflect who God, our creator, is. And each of us are called to give to God what is God's. The thing that has his image on it is ourselves, and we are called to give it to God. In that moment, Jesus maintained his integrity by reminding them of the truth that they were created in God's image. And the most important thing, the thing that brought everything else into order and justice and rightness and integrity was giving themselves to God. He doesn't undermine the political leadership of Caesar despite its brokenness. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But at the same time, he calls people to something more, to someone higher. You see, it wasn't Christ's ability to reason with them that called out the injustice. It wasn't his powerful speech. It was his integrity that allowed him to call them back to who they really are, human beings bearing the image of God. So the question becomes for you and me, right? How can you and I, through Christ, maintain integrity that upsets the injustice in our world today? How can we bear the image of Christ outside of this place? Three ways to have integrity that upsets injustice that we see in this passage. Number one is this. Don't be silent. Don't be silent. Don't lose your integrity by not speaking to the things that are wrong in our world. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. Ephesians 5.11 says it this way, Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. You see, in this moment where they're trying to test him, to, to put him in a corner, Jesus could have walked away. He could have avoided the questions. He could have done anything he wanted to. But he engaged the conversation. You know, for some of us, we choose to not engage conversations that are controversial. We might feel like we don't have anything to say. We're nervous to say anything that upsets the situation. We don't know what to say. But if you don't know what to say, follow Christ's example and ask questions. But whatever you do, don't be silent. Here's what I'm saying. To put blinders on and act like everything is okay in your corner of the world is not okay. And we have a responsibility as Christians to talk about things in our community that are not okay. It's not okay that kids in our community are living in abusive homes. It's not okay that kids in our community will go hungry the next two weeks while school is out. It's not okay that we feel comfortable driving down some streets in our community and uncomfortable driving down others. It's not okay that our kids are more comfortable having conversations about race than we are as adults. Ask questions out loud to real people who are second generation immigrants, to people who are the racial minority, to people that are misunderstood recovering addicts, to, to mistreated women. Ask questions to be able to, to empathize with them before dismissing them. 
And then, when given the opportunity, speak up for them. See, so often it's not about who you're against, it's who you're for. And we must be for the people who are oppressed. As parents, we have to be willing to wade into hard conversations with our kids so that they can begin to recognize injustices in our world. They see when things are wrong, and they see when you ignore it. And they need to know when things aren't right. They need to know from Scripture what is right. They're counting on you to teach them those things, to talk about them as a family. You can maintain integrity while at the same time speaking up for those facing injustice. It's hard. It forces, it requires you to focus on those who need served, but it's possible. More than possible, we don't maintain our integrity if we never speak up for people. Integrity requires us to not be silent, but it also requires us to respond with grace to the antagonist. I would love to hear Jesus' tone as he said the things that we read in this passage. Just to hear his voice and how he said those things. But regardless, you can tell that Jesus has grace for all three groups who challenged him. The Pharisees, he could have called them out on being too focused on the rules. The Herodians, he could have punished them for turning Herod into an idol. Uh, The Sadducees, he could have just, I don't know, punched them square between the eyes for suggesting that he didn't actually bring Lazarus back from the dead or that he wasn't powerful enough to come back to life himself. But instead... He goes with their talking points. He challenges, no doubt. But he has grace for these guys that were coming to try and mess him up. They wanted to force him into a mistake, into a failure, and he responds so gracefully. I'm reminded of the words of Paul to a guy that he was training up in Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 25 says this. It maintains that tension of grace and truth. Reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Grace and truth. So we can't be silent. We have to respond with grace to our antagonists. Perhaps most important, though, is to make sure that your relationship with Christ is alive, not dead. So challenging how this passage ends. The Sadducees have come. They've brought this case, this, this hypothetical situation of, of, that reflected back to the Old Testament law, like what happens, what happens, what happens in the resurrection if, if all these husbands, like, like we don't believe in the resurrection, kind of got a little smile on their face because they think, ah, we've got him cornered. He can't answer this question. And he comes all the way back to 27, verse 27, his last statement to them, and he says, this God, right? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are sadly, badly mistaken. Can you imagine being a Sadducee in that moment? Jesus Christ looking you in the eye and saying, you are badly mistaken. Something scary about being a Sadducee. There's something scary about not believing in the power of God. I think there's something scary in trying to answer the question whether we're alive or dead in Christ. You know, when we think about these arguments and how we're going to engage and and what kind of conversations we have and how we talk about things with grace and truth and how we talk to people that we disagree with, there's this this question that lurks in the back of our minds that we don't want to admit is there. The question is, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? So to defend against that question, we 
we put up a bigger front. We talk louder, we get angrier, we come up with more points to support our side of the argument. But here's what's amazing. If we are alive in Christ, being wrong loses its threat of killing us. If, if I'm alive in Christ, I don't have to kill others to maintain my life. Christ lives in me. He gives me life. And so the question that each of us has to answer as we think about how we engage is, are you alive in Christ? Because if you are, you've been given everything you need to engage grace and truth through him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 talks about this mystery of being dead and then alive that we saw depicted in Andrea's baptism today. It says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Are you really alive in Christ? Are you really alive in Christ? We may come up with a quick answer, but I bet the Sadducees did too. <laughs> right? Yes, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing. Christ says, ah, oh, but you are badly mistaken. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Are you really alive in Christ? Only he can take what is wrong about you and make it right. Only he can give you life. You bear his image. The only way to live is to die to yourself so that you can reflect his image. This morning, I want to close a little bit differently than I usually do. In the Bible app or on the screen, we're going to have Psalm 141. Psalm 141 is just a, a prayer that David wrote. And I just want to read that together as our prayer. And the band's going to come, and, and we're going to sing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's just a reminder of what Christ did for us to make us alive. He died himself to give us life. We take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice to remember that Christ's body was broken. His blood was shed as he was nailed to the cross so that we could live forever. Maybe you've never made the decision to follow Christ. Maybe you thought you were doing things right and you realize this morning that you're badly mistaken. I'd love to just meet with you, learn your story. I'll be in the back as we sing and as we respond. This morning, to close, I want to read Psalm 141. And let that be our prayer to him as we continue in our worship. David writes, Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. Don't let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. 
Don't let me feast on their delicacies. Let the righteous ones strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of the cliff, the people will listen to my words for they are pleasing. As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Don't let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Father, that's our prayer this morning. That you would hear our cries to you. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would help them to see their need for you and that you would rescue them. Father, our eyes look to you. Help us to seek refuge in you. And as we do that, we can know that we won't be trapped. <laughs> we won't be trapped by the words of those who are and looking to get a Christian on the wrong side of an argument. We won't be trapped by those who want us to take one political side or another. But we will find our si ourselves living and defined by Christ alone. Lord, we need you. We need you now. Come. Fill us, make us alive again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.